Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Amanda. And you're listening to the Hire You Podcast. Becoming a movement builder. Jen, how did you become so audacious as to call yourself a movement builder? Well, I don't think I started off calling myself that until we had a little bit of momentum. And then it was like, all right, I guess since, you know, this keeps growing organically and there's all these indicators that people are loving what we're doing and becoming our kind of ambassadors, we thought, ah, we must be onto something. So it gave us the steam and then the strength and confidence later. That's so interesting. So you didn't see yourself as a movement builder when you started it. It was something that happened organically? Yeah, we had very big intentions when we started Ideal Bite. It was literally in our mission statement to help make green go mainstream. And we knew that we weren't going to be the only players. We were going to own a slice of that bigger green movement. And our slice was light green, right? The people that were driving their SUVs to Whole Foods. So we also didn't have a ton of credibility initially because even though I had a green MBA and I'd been living green my whole life, people didn't know me from Eve. And so it took us repeatedly kind of proving ourselves until people saw us as the thought leaders in that space. It's interesting because when you choose to lead an organization with a personal mission, it doesn't necessarily mean that you identify yourself as a quote unquote movement builder. It's one thing to say you're the founder of a startup or you're starting a business, which is pretty normal. But to say there is a social order that I want to personally have a hand in changing, that takes a lot of courage. Absolutely. I do think that, you know, obviously so much has changed since when I started Ideal Byte and now the distribution of power is it's much more accessible. Basically, it's not just held by a few and anybody can get in there and start like, for example, like a hashtag and it can have real resonance and a real kind of undercurrent to it that just carries it forward. You know, just for fun, I'm going to debate you on that one. There was a lot of talk in the beginning of the Internet that it was going to democratize everything including the distribution of power. But at the same time, if you look at the concentration of wealth and the rise of populism and authoritarianism, in some ways, power is being even more concentrated. So I think it depends on which lens you look. Yes, there is the potential for that, but there's also the potential for technology to be a force that authoritarianism uses to control people. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm all we're talking about is movement building and is it easier now than it was 10 years ago. And my premise is yes, because you have all these different mechanisms in which to just get real exposure, awareness, velocity. It's like if you look at the Me Too movement and how quickly that spread, it spread overnight. There were hundreds of thousands of Me Too hashtags within like 48 hours. Yeah, that was so. That's what I'm talking about, that it is much more easy when you can tap into the zeitgeist of a current, you know, trend, belief, need, grievance in this society, and then it develops its own momentum. It's much easier to do that now. Again, kind of I'm using the word hashtag to represent the the modern era of, you know, technical ubiquity that we're in. Then it's easier than 10 years ago, plus when it was really had to be a little bit more of a slog because we weren't all hyper-connected. Totally. I mean, that's really what we teach here is movement marketing, which can we talk about the difference between movement marketing and just straight up marketing? I would love to. So Amanda, same question. When you started Daily Worth, did you see yourself as a movement builder? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've always been social justice warrior, probably since I was born. For me, building a business was really just the vehicle for scale. And that's why I chose a for-profit entity because I wanted to use venture capital and profit mechanisms to be able to grow as quickly as possible. I've always identified as a leader. It's always come easily to me to stand on a stage and speak my truth. I know that that can be really intimidating for a lot of people, and that doesn't mean you're not a movement builder or a leader, but just in terms of my perspective, it was always about the movement. It was always about women's equality for me, and it was always driven by a lot of personal passion and, frankly, anger at the status quo. And Daily Worth as a brand and our profit model and using email were really not secondary, but those came after I figured out what I wanted my movement to be. And then I figured out the model of how to grow it. So I wonder, you know, in order to be a movement builder, do you have to have an inherent desire or ability to lead? That's an amazing question. I would be hard pressed. We should think about, are there movements out there that don't have strong leaders behind them? I don't know. I mean, about, yeah, I mean, there's Occupy Wall Street, there's the women's movement, which I think have a lot of leaders, they don't necessarily have a face, but I know there's really powerful people driving them, even if they aren't necessarily the face of those movements. Right. And as we know, once your movement becomes so successful, it takes on a life of its own, it doesn't need any you know, it also becomes kind of distributed and more ubiquitous. And so it doesn't need one leader. But I do think in order to certainly kind of galvanize something or make things take flight, that you need to have some sort of leadership. And in terms of like being the CEO of that, or, you know, just the the leader of the organization, or even the hashtag. Yeah, I would say you have to, you have to have some, you you shouldn't be the person that is like, I don't want to voice in this, but I want to start this movement. Like, how does that happen? Because there needs to be that authenticity and that passion that comes through. And I know with you, you definitely have it because of your history with kind of, you know, uh, women and inequality and the disempowerment or the empowerment you can get through actually having a prowess around your finances. And with me, I actually also the same, like I looked at nature as our solution and just absolute best thing that we've been given as a gift and how we're destroying it. And so I got very passionate about like us being smarter, you know, because we live here. <laughs> there is no plan B, right? This is our planet Earth. And so um, also just very impassioned about that. I don't know. I think that if you don't want to have a voice, that's really hard to launch the movement, right? Yeah. I learned this from Arun Chaudhry, who is a former colleague of mine at Revolution Messaging and who was Bernie Sanders' creative director on the 2016 campaign. And he always talked about three critical factors in building any, he would be talking about campaigns, but they, that translates to movements in many ways. And the three things he always talked about were authorship, authenticity, and origination story or narrative. So of course you can build a movement in lots of different ways, but unless you have authorship, meaning why are you the one creating it? And is that a story that folks can connect with and organize around authenticity? Is it really real or are you kind of making it up to sound good in order to try and get people to follow you, but it's not truly authentic to your experience? And then what's the origination story? How was it born? Why does it have the spark? Why does it have to be right now? And what is the story that those joining you in your tribe can identify with? I always love thinking about those three things. 
authorship, mm -hmm. authenticity, and origination story. Yeah. And so if you're listening right now, then, and you're wondering, you know, I'm really passionate about this. Should I kind of start my, my movement around this issue, which I have passion, which there's a, you know, a shared social underpinnings and a broad kind of social justice that can be attained by doing it. Do you have authorship? Do you have authenticity? Do you have origination story? And that is just to get off of square one, right? The next square, That's I would to say- That's you interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's to get exactly. people's attention. Otherwise, it's, it'll fall kind of flat. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in fact, we just both very briefly told our origination story of like why we're passionate about this and kind of sort of how we got going. I think that then the next stage is, you know, do you have such a deep desire, burning passion that you can throw everything at this because it's not as easy as making a widget that you can sell and have it produced in China or something like that. It's much more dimensional. It's going to, I think, require a lot more heart and soul, even though movement marketing is different than traditional marketing because you get to tap into already a bit of a trend and kind of ride that wave. It is a little bit more complicated, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's definitely more complicated. You know, what you're talking about, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a woman in our Facebook group where she talked about how she was building a movement around helping people recover from deep loss. She had lost her twin children at some point. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh my God, you know, how, un how unfortunate it is that a lot of times movements are born out of such immense pain. Mm -hmm. And what she said, which I was really struck by, she said, well, I think it's a choice you can live with that turmoil and that pain, or you can choose, and it is a choice, to use it as a springboard to help others not have to suffer the way you have. And I That's thought right. that was beautifully resonant, and I love the point that she made about how it's a choice. You can definitely continue to suffer, or you can choose to transform that suffering into service of others. Yep. You can let it eat you, or you can use it to propel your movement. I love that. So, you know, I think that in terms of people out there listening and wondering, am I a movement builder? Could I be? What else does it take? What are some other maybe like must-haves or keys to success with becoming a movement builder, would you say? Well, you know, it, I'm glad you asked that because we've talked about, you know, choosing to become a leader, about developing your authentic story. I think the, the next really key point is having a financial model or a business model because you need money to grow. And if you don't have a way of earning either through donations or through the sale of a product, depending on your tax structure, you're going to stay really small because, you know, in the beginning, you do have to invest in your growth. And for everybody listening out there that was not a subscriber of Daily Worth or Ideal Bites, our financial model, our business model was advertising. And so we were publishers and we would produce, I would like to say, pretty good content. And then we sold advertising. So that's basically just monetizing eyeballs. Um, but there's a lot of different business models and financial models. And we just want to make sure that you have thought through it, meaning is the audience big enough, right? Do you have that total movement or market opportunity outlined? Are there enough people that want to join you? Are there enough people that will put their money where their mouth is in whatever capacity that takes? Meaning, is it the donations? Is it some sort of a transaction? And, uh, and so, yeah, being financially sustainable is an important piece because you don't want to start something and put all that, you know, energy, uh, which is the hardest bit is starting anything, but then to die on the vine because it has, can't be sustained. 
is sad. <laughs> right. And I would yeah. say maybe not even die on the vine. I would just say stay small, you know, not ever reach the potential because if you're starting a movement, it's because you want to change the status quo. Society continues to have this repeat pattern that happens over and over again that you want to change. The only way to change that is to organize masses and masses of people. And the only way to really do that in an organized fashion takes some sort of infrastructure and infrastructure costs money. Right. I think that is also bringing me to my next thought about, all right, so at what point, though, do you get to stop investing so heavily, right? At what point do you get to say, I no longer have to do all the heavy lifting and let's see if this movement is going to carry itself at all, right? It's the difference like in our marketing world of organic versus paid advertising. And, you know, we've had discussions about, okay, so then like if everything is super engineered and purchased, is that really a movement or is there a conglomerate behind it that's making it feel like it is? Or are there people out there that really feel passionate about it and are just doing basically your work for you, which is sharing it, forwarding it, talking about it, bringing social currency to it? Well, I would imagine movements have phases, right? In the beginning, you have to invest in the growth because you have to get it in front of enough people to get enough adoption, to get enough members of your tribe in order for it to even exist as a brand and as an idea. Critical mass. I don't know if that's critical mass. That's actually critical mass is the tipping point of when the social change happens. This is early adoption. Well, you have to get it to a point where you actually have something to build upon. And I don't want to like, you know, debate you about like uh, terminology and everything. I'm saying like, you can't just start a movement with a dollar basically. And that to get to a critical mass, it depends on, I guess, what you're defining as, you know, your different kind of key milestones. It's like when we were starting uh, our business, it's like when we got to 100,000. And then if we could then say that at least 20% of that 100,000 had told their friends to join, that we would consider that a success. Because if we don't have people saying, hey, this is so awesome to their friends, then there's something wrong with our, with our product. Right. But first, you have to have enough people to even say to their friends, those people have to exist. We'll have to give these clearer names over time. But in the beginning, you need to establish your base, I guess. Is that what you would call it? Your base? Mm-hmm. And that requires money, the, which I, what I think you did so well with Ideal Byte was you were able to transition from the point at which you were doing one-to-one enrollment into Ideal Byte, which in your case was an email sign up as the first entry point, to the point where the biters, the subscribers to Ideal Byte saw it as their honor to share Ideal Byte because they were spreading the impact of light green living, of sustainable lifestyle. Uh-huh. So that is really ultimately what is one of the keys to movement marketing is how do you transition from that kind of one-to-one invite to the point where your tribe becomes your ambassadors? Right. In today's world of technology, you can see that. You can see how many forwards you get, how many shares, how many retweets. And there is no hard and fast rule of it needs to be 20% or 50% of your base or whatever. But I think that you start to get the message. If you don't see anyone talking about it, if you don't have anybody brought to the table because of word of mouth, basically. Word of mouth is like <laughs> the old school term for the virality or that, that shareableness. And does the person who talks about your brand think that they're going to be gaining something because of it. That means your brand has social currency or your movement has social currency, right? Like I remember when somebody told me about me too, 
And I was like, oh, wow, she's really tapped in. She is talking about something important and she has a personal story and, you know, and then hence the, the spread. So, yeah. so um, with Daily Worth, though, it was really hard for us to get that word of mouth because money is something people are embarrassed about and people don't want to admit if they have financial problems. The way we finally were able to get lots of sharing was when we did bold feminist content, like Stop Apologizing right. was a really big one for us, or Childless by Choice was a huge one. But it wasn't anything ever having to do with money because people didn't right. forward anything having to do with money. Well, I think that if you had had our course back when, you would have yes. initially launched with those things. I because wished I had had my, this course it, when I it, it, <laughs> Exactly. And so you just tied into the zeitgeist of a shared grievance and uh, something that was already out there and you hooked your thing into it. And that's what we teach is a thousand times harder to actually create a movement from scratch versus tapping into things that are already going going on and then figuring out how you can play a part, right? Yeah. So what would you say? I mean, I think this is fascinating. I'm the finance tech person. You're much more the marketer marketer. And you're really good at articulating what is the difference between traditional marketing and movement marketing as you see it? So there's a few differences. One is traditional marketing speaks to the individual and movement marketing speaks to a group of people because they've identified as the tribe, right? The tribe of people that care about this. You're also speaking to something that they already believe, right? Which is what you just brought up in saying, you know, childless by choice. They know they're childless by choice. Now they get to see how, you know, um, for example, your offering with finances plays into that and how to connect with other people that are dinks, possibly double income, no kits or whatever, right? And, and the financial implications therein. So you're tapping into something that they already believe versus traditional marketing. It might be like, wow, your, your car isn't being cleaned as well as it could be. You should look at the sham. Wow. Like no one really thought about like their car wasn't being, but it's the other type of marketing. And then you're sharing instead of telling, because again, of this, we're 2020 now, and it's all about authenticity and storytelling and connecting and being real and being human. And there's just, especially with the millennials, a big, big, big backlash to anything that smacks of inauthentic or too much corporate slash greed, right? So you're, you're, or too fabricated even. Yeah, really engineered something. Uh, Along those same lines, just making sure that you are not in an ivory tower and that you're really connecting, you're plugging into conversations that matter, you're talking about things that aren't just self serving and aren't just about your product or your service, and, and that you're just kind of a part of the whole ecosystem, the relevant ecosystem in which you're playing in. So, so those are the differences. I saw someone post someone I'm connected to on Facebook post that it's egomaniacal to say that you are a movement builder. Yeah, that's a cool, you know, pushback, I think. I mean, it's an interesting thing to look at. And yeah, you know, you and I are both a little bit bold and brazen. And so we're okay with if somebody said that, we'll just be like, all right, well, let me know what you're doing for the world. Right. (laughs) (laughs) What else is there to do? What else is there to do? And um, we're trying to be part of the solution. What are you doing? Right. But it is daunting. You know, you would hate to have somebody call you out if you're not feeling confident. And that's where, you know, again, we got to kind of walk before we ran and get that credibility where you just came out of the gate going, I am a financial expert and I'm going to talk about it. 
I don't know. I mean, I guess it's what your tolerance, your thick skin, right? You have to be a thick skin to be a movement leader. Okay. So we'll add that to the list of requirements. Good one. <laughs> yeah. I remember um, I wrote a piece in the Atlantic that had to do with the end of gender as a biological determinant of your personality. It was because the editor-in-chief of Esquire, this was like back in 2014, wrote an editorial that was basically like, women can't become the leaders of our society. This was like really trendy conversation back then because it's going to really harm our boys, et cetera, et cetera. So I decided to write a rebuttal to this premise. And I got hate mail like you would not believe. I got death threats. I got rape threats. Ooh. I got inundate. I got phone calls. I got email. I mean, it was like, it was almost like it had been posted in some subversive group and they mobilized against me. And it was totally terrifying. And, you know, it really wasn't even that controversial of an article. It was really just kind of pressing against this idea that our biology should not determine our roles in society. Not all that radical, but wow, you know, you definitely have to, if you really want to alter the fabric of society to be better for people, there is going to be some moments of exposure that you have to prepare yourself for. Yeah, absolutely. And some, just call it, you know, some haters. And that's how you know, actually, that you have tapped into something. There is a societal pattern that needs to be disrupted, that there is a paradigm that is unjust, that needs to be disrupted because people will fight really hard to keep ex old paradigms that protect old power. So if anybody's curious about the article Amanda's referencing, it's called The End of the Battle of the Sexes. The Rise of Women Does Not Have to Lead to the Fall of Men. It's in the Atlantic. Thank you. You're welcome. This was, yeah, 2013. But you know, that doesn't seem so absurd that the rise of women does not need to lead to the fall of men. And yet that is how you know you're pushing up against something when it causes a massive backlash, I'll tell you. That's true. I almost feel like that's a key to like knowing that you're onto something is are you getting pushback? Are you getting people's, you know, hair to stand up in the back of their neck? Are you getting some hate mail? If so, high five. <laughs> right. High five. How you know you're doing something that matters. Yeah, like if we were to start a movement about the protection of dandelions, you know, no like it's there. <laughs> no one would care. No one's going to send us any mail. We might get some nice letters from grandmas. And I mean, I love grandmas. Don't get me wrong. You got to you got to pick something that is emotive and galvanizing and is not right. You know, there's so many things that just don't make sense that we assume like, oh, it's almost like a business as usual. And that's how it's always been done. Well, movement makers call bullshit, mm -hmm. right? And if you call bullshit, amen. huh? I said, amen. We say amen in the South. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we marry a man. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Sometimes a woman, if you want to get blacklisted. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. I, you know, again, it, the, when the movement makers have to be brave enough to call bullshit. I think that's a good summation. I think that's a great note to end on. All right. Talk to you later, Tater. 